Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. The better your focus, the better your concentration, the better able the cortex, the thinking brain, is able to operate. Your senses are sharp, your thinking is clear, and so you're really perking along. The importance of maintaining mental focus and ways we can avoid being too easily distracted. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. In a world where so many of us experience information overload, the ability to concentrate on what's important and not get caught up in the other stuff has become practically a survival skill. Avoiding diversion and staying focused can simplify life and give clarity of thinking. But Focus, the title of former New York Times neuroscience reporter Daniel Goleman's recent book, is an intricate human faculty. The first research on attention, the first serious research, was about vigilance in World War II because they there had uh, airplane spotters who had to be vigilant all night when nothing was happening. They'd fall asleep. They wanted to know what helps someone stay alert and or what uh, makes them go to sleep. We had that terrible train accident in New York where the conductor had dozed off while going around a bend at high speed, causing catastrophe. And he didn't say, I dozed off. He said, I lost focus, which is technically true, but it may be because he did doze off. The train was uh, en route from Poughkeepsie to uh, Grand Central Station. The entire train, seven cars and a locomotive were all derailed. Preliminary reports we've received from the emergency services indicate that there were numerous injuries. This is one of the hazards of routine work that has high risk, that the uh, person at the controls is going to lose attention. So attention is extremely important, really, in everything we do. And easy to lose it? Uh, Very easy to lose it. Uh, In fact, we lose it on average 50% of the time. They've done studies where, for example, they gave an iPhone app to people and it rang them at random moments, asked two questions. What are you doing now? What are you thinking about? Uh, If you're thinking about something else, it means your mind has wandered off from from the present. On average, 50% of the time, much higher, actually, when people are commuting when they're sitting in front of a computer terminal, and they're, when they're at work. I'm sorry to say this to people that run businesses, but it's true. A lot of employees 
are often drifting off, bored, and it's, the people in human resources call it disengaged. Disengaged meaning that their interest has departed? Exactly. Disengaged from paying attention to my job and, you know, I'm doing this little game on the web or whatever it is. It's a big problem. The opposite, I should say, by the way, when our attention is at its max, no surprise when people are making love. But the question is, who answers an app like that at a time like that? I've never quite figured that out. I'm not sure I trust that data. Daniel Goleman explains there are different kinds of focus. Concentration is when we bring full attention to whatever we're doing. But he points out if the mind wanders, it's not necessarily unproductive because daydreaming can sometimes lead to creative insights. And, says Goldman, the brain is wired to focus on some unpleasant things, like the perception of danger or emotional distress. So if we're worrying, we tend to focus on it. Some people seem to be very good at tuning out distractions and zeroing in on what's in front of them. And others seem to get sidetracked rather easily. What's going on in those two cases? Uh, people who can tune in well, who can concentrate well, uh, have a very good capacity for what's called cognitive control. Cognitive control is an essential mental faculty. It means I can pay attention to what I choose to pay attention to and not be distracted. And if I am distracted, I'm going to notice I'm distracted and bring my mind back. That, that's a moment of mindfulness, actually, when you notice you're distracted. We, usually when we're distracted, our mind drifts off and we drift right along with it. So when you notice you're distracted, at that moment, you're actually paying attention. You're paying attention in what's called meta-awareness. Meta-awareness means kind of stepping to the balcony of the mind, seeing where, where things are and adjusting them if you need to. Every time you pay attention to something, it drifts, your mind drifts, your attention goes elsewhere, you notice it's drifted, and you bring your mind back. You're actually doing a, basically a repetition in the mental gym. You're strengthening the circuitry for paying attention. Uh, brain studies have been showing this now at Emory University and other centers, and that is exactly akin to going to the gym, taking a free weight, and every time you lift that weight, for a repetition, you're strengthening the muscle. We can strengthen this muscle of the mind, concentration. What's going on in the brain at times of heightened mental focus when people are really zeroed in, in the zone, absorbed? What's happening in the brain? Well, this is sometimes called a state of maximum cognitive efficiency. It means everything in the is working at tip-top. This is why people... Uh, in, with high concentration like that, can get into the state of flow. Flow is the state where people are in when they outdo themselves, they outperform themselves, they absolutely do their very best in whatever their domain of expertise may be. The research was done by a group at the University of Chicago who asked people in all kinds of callings, uh, basketball, ballerinas, chess champions, neurosurgeons, tell us about a time you outdid yourself didn't matter what they were doing, the inner state was the same, and it was a state of 100% concentration. It was also a state where 
people's best skills were called on. They really had to put out at the top of their abilities. And that uh, demanded concentration. You can't do that if you're not fully paying attention. Staying focused is essential not only for high performance in worldly activities, it's also a necessary condition of reflection to gain depth of understanding. If we want to develop meaningful perspective on a subject we're studying or a task at hand, or to understand ourselves, the ability to concentrate is indispensable, and that requires persistent focus. Author Daniel Goleman. If you're reading a book, if you're listening to um, an hour-long radio show that's getting into some really interesting themes, in order to understand how one idea builds on another and on another, you have to pay sustained attention. The more you're distracted, the more you miss, the more holes there are in comprehension. This shows up really vividly uh, in schools now. I was talking to an eighth-grade teacher who said, I've been giving students the same text for 10, 15 years. In the last two, three years, students just aren't understanding it as well. And these are bright students. And it's because kids are distracted or let themselves be distracted while they're reading, while they're doing their homework, while the teacher is talking. Some schools now uh, ban phones from classrooms because kids are texting each other in class while the teacher is talking. And that is undermining this kind of comprehension. So I think it's become a bigger and bigger problem. And what does it mean to have sustained focus? So if you have sustained focus on what you're reading, you can relate what you're reading now to what you just read 10 minutes ago or 10 pages ago. And what helps you do that is the sustained focus. If you get interrupted, if you get distracted, you're not going to be able to make the connections, not going to be able to see how one idea builds on another or one idea relates to another. But the basis of learning is how one new concept ties into everything else you know. And you need to sustain attention in order to allow that process to happen at its best. And is it hard? to sustain our focus and our attention? If we're interested, it comes very easily. If we're not so interested, we have to make an effort. And by the way, that tendency to be distracted is amped up today by all of the digital devices we have, which are very seductive. I think the norms for attention have changed enormously in the last five, 10 years, and that the space of protected private, here's what I choose to attend to, full attention is getting smaller and smaller and more and more fragile. And so what is that technological environment doing to our actual brain function? Well, I think several things are going on. First of all, the, the digital world has its wonders and is, is, has uh, amplified what we can know, what we can remember, what we have access to enormously in ways we never could have dreamt. I mean, the fact you can Google anything is astounding. It means that the world's knowledge, or very much of it, is right at your fingertips. That's fantastic because knowledge is distributed. Memory is distributed. And it used to be we, we had just a few people. My wife is very good at remembering people's names. I distribute uh, name memory to her. 
She does it beautifully. But now I can go way beyond that because I can know anything. So that's fantastic. The problem is that the same devices intrude in ways that we don't choose, and they pull our attention away continuously. I was uh, just talking to a group of business people, and they're all complaining that their whole day is just one distraction after another. You know, I've got to get this text from so-and-so, and there's a phone call, and here's an email, and on and on and on. Uh, and they feel overwhelmed by it. And I think that overwhelm is an important signal that we need to take back control. There's very good research from Harvard Business School that shows if you're working on something, let's say you have a project you've got to deliver a certain time, the difference between a good day and a bad day is that on a good day, you had protected time where you got something done you feel good about. It's a small win toward a larger goal. Protected time meaning uninterrupted time? Uninterrupted time. And if you never have that time, you feel, you know, that was a bad day. I didn't get anything done. You did a thousand things, but not that one thing you had to do. And also, I think being so reactive to all of the signals and interruptions coming at us can be uh, destabilizing. It, it makes it very hard to find your center if you're constantly reacting to what my friend David Allen calls latest and loudest. Latest and loudest, exactly. And the data shows that if you are fully concentrated on that one important thing, and all of a sudden you get interrupted, and then interrupted again, and interrupted again, it takes you a long time to ramp up to full concentration again when you do get back to that one thing. So there are hidden costs in that, those interruptions, too. So do we need to build in protected time to our day? I think that uh, it's very smart to do that. I've taken to, for example, when I write, I come up to a studio uh, on a hill above my house. There's no phone in there. I don't look at my email. I just get something done for an hour or two. Then I go down to my office where all my distractions live, and I deal with the full day's catastrophe of whatever it may be. And I think that uh, that's a strategy that we need to be more intentional about. For example, with kids, you've got, it's really helpful to tell your child, do your homework, then you can do the video game. Do your homework, then you can text your friend. Don't mix the two. And you're, that, you're, you're taking a page from the Cookie Monster. <laughs> and in fact, the Cookie Monster story, which I tell in the book, is and about... And I'll bet it's one of the most remarked upon. <laughs> uh, people remember the Cookie Monster. It's teaching what's called cognitive control. Cognitive control is this ability to keep your mind on that one thing and bring it back when it wanders or when there's a, a distraction or, or ignore the distractions. A Cookie Monster wants to join the Cookie Connoisseur Club. And the Cookie Connoisseur Club, you take a cookie... You examine it for imperfections, you sniff it, and then take a little nibble. Of course, Cookie cannot stand it. He has to gobble the cookie down, because he's Cookie Monster. Oatmeal and raisin. Cookie! The guy who runs the store on Sesame Street, who started the Cookie Club, explains to Cookie you know, Cookie, if you don't eat this cookie now, you can have a whole bunch of different kinds of cookies later. That wins them over. And that is a perfect instruction in cognitive control for a toddler, which is what they're doing on Sesame Street. But it sounds like it would be quite an apt lesson for many of us. 
I think for all of us, and in fact, this ability, cognitive control, has been found to uh, predict from childhood your financial success and health in your mid-30s. And it cognitive control in childhood predicts success better than IQ and better than the wealth of the family you grew up in. So in that sense, is cognitive control delayed gratification? It sometimes is called delayed gratification. Sometimes it's called emotional management. Sometimes it's called working memory, allocation of attention. Depends on your orientation. Sometimes it's called executive function. It's managed by the brain's executive center, which is behind the forehead and the prefrontal cortex. And it's really the key to a successful life, to knowing what your priorities are and dealing with them in the order of their importance. How good are you at resisting cookies? <laughs> well, since I realize I'm allergic to gluten, it's become a lot easier. <laughs> We're discussing the art and science of maintaining mental focus with Daniel Goleman, a former New York Times reporter specializing in brain science. He's author of Emotional Intelligence and, most recently, of Focus. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this topic and to obtain an audio download of this segment, Maintaining Focus with Daniel Goleman, please visit humanmedia.org. One of the really interesting things you've observed is that people who have a high level of self-awareness, people who really notice how they're feeling, what's motivating their behavior, people who are conscious of themselves, that they are often better at focusing on what's happening with others and better at understanding other people in their lives. Can you explain that? Well, it's very fascinating uh, data, but what it says essentially is if you're tuned out of some aspect of your experience, you, you, you somehow have a blind spot in your own self-awareness, you won't be able to pick that up in someone else. You'll be tuned out of that same range of experience in the other person. The full because you're intentionally blocking out the perception of that? I don't know exactly why. We just observe that that's the case. Uh, and you, maybe it's because you're not familiar with the signals for that. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's whatever your personal history has uh, determined that you're not so tuned into. And it may be because your family didn't uh, allow that to be aired, whatever it is. But that also means that you're not able to uh, sense the cues. And the reason is really newly discovered. It's that when we tune into someone else's emotions, what goes on in our brain is that a part of the uh, emotional center called the insula uh, reads that emotion and activates in us the emotion going on in the other person. So we actually read uh, the other person's emotions through our own body. But if our own body doesn't respond to a range of emotion, we're not going to get that. 
So awareness of others, a genuine sensitivity to how they're feeling, being truly empathetic, derives in part from self-reflection, from the capacity to understand oneself. In a way, we're seeing an aspect of ourselves mirrored by the other person and vice versa. And the master key of this kind of awareness is our ability to notice what's really going on, both in ourselves and in the people around us. Clear perception of that awareness, sometimes called mindfulness, is a moment-to-moment process. Daniel Goleman. Mindfulness is uh, the kind of attention that looks at the mind itself, that monitors the mind. It's not looking outward, but it's just noticing what's going on. It's kind of an inner witness to whatever's going on. And you might... Uh, Some of the mindfulness methods, for example, will ask people simply to label what's going on in your mind. Uh, I'm breathing. I'm hearing something. I'm having a negative thought. I'm having another negative thought. Because when you do that, you activate a different brain center than the one that gets sucked into the thought. It's a brain center that gives you a degree of freedom from the thought. So there's there's an actual part of the brain structure that allows a person to witness what the mind is doing? Exactly. If you can activate a neutral awareness that self-observes, then you have a tool in your mental toolkit that's extremely powerful because that part of the mind does not get sucked into the negativity, doesn't ruminate, doesn't loop. It just watches, says, oh, I'm looping again. It's self-awareness. And that self-awareness allows you to have the degrees of freedom to do something different. Otherwise, if you're depressed, all you do is ruminate. If you're anxious, all you do is ruminate. The just, same just loop. Just repeat the same yeah. thought. Yeah, but if you have... Un- unproductive. If, you ha- if you're mindful, if you have self-awareness, you can tell yourself, I'm having those thoughts again. There's something I can do about it. You can object to the thoughts. You can challenge them. You can have a think intentionally about something positive, something different. In other words, it gives you inner freedom. Can prayer be helpful at a moment like that? I think prayer can also be a way to get out of that rut because the, the act of praying is already doing something different. The problem with depression, the problem with anxiety disorders is that people get caught up in the same rut of thought and can't get out. So anything And, and they're can, aware that they're stuck. No, they may, they're, they may or may not be aware that they're stuck, but they're stuck in either case. If they're aware they're stuck, they may be able to open a door out. But if you just stay stuck, then there's, you just get depressed. You know, it's self-reinforcing. That's, that's being really trapped. What happens when a person focuses on their highest self, on on the spiritual consciousness that everybody has in their highest expression of themselves? What happens when we focus on that? Well, I can't generalize because there's so many spiritual paths and everyone is different. But in general, I would say that it opens us to the widest range of possibility, of human possibility, and also human goodness. I think there's, you know, a a lot of uh, cynicism in the culture, a lot of skepticism, a lot of negativity. And we're uh, we're a pretty jaded society. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. 
And uh, I think it's actually quite healthy to consider a range of very positive alternatives. You know, we can be compassionate. We can be virtuous. We can be good people. Uh, and it's good to allow that range of possibility. And I think a spiritual bent does that. It actually reinforces that part of us. Every spiritual path uh, has a version of this positive outlook, whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. Everyone uh, engaged in those pursuits is looking at the positive side of being, the ability to cultivate qualities uh, that are admirable, that are, in a sense, virtuous in, in the classics words, but which mean that the, our better selves, the angels of our better nature, as one phrase has it, uh, are not only a nice idea, but something that we can work toward in our own lives, we can make real, that we can become. And I think that's uh, really a very potent response to the drag of negativity or the drag of cynicism. In the Islamic tradition, the qualities of God are recited, qualities like compassion, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. generosity, mm -hmm. forgiveness, humility, treating others with equality, the, the virtues that you're describing, mm -hmm. are recited unto themselves, that just a focus on those qualities, saying over and over, compassion, generosity, mm -hmm. can, patience, can sink in pretty deep and can serve as an antidote to some of the cynicism and the negative energies that draw us. You know, I've long been um, a practitioner and actually student of meditation. And the first book I did was called The Meditative Mind. It looked at practices from a whole range of spiritual traditions. And it was interesting to me because I found that at base, all spiritual traditions from an intentional point of view were doing the same thing. They're retraining attention. And they're helping us take our attention away from the mundane, from the worry, from the depressing, and look at the transcendental, look at the upside, look at the positive qualities that we can nurture. Retraining and redirecting our Re attention. Redirecting and retraining. Uh, and in fact, uh, I was in a second grade classroom in Spanish Harlem, watching seven-year-olds do a very secular version of what all these spiritual traditions are doing. This was, a, from a cognitive science point of view, they're retraining attention, but it's a kind of a meditation, but with no belief system in particular attached, but it still had benefits. It's really interesting. They uh, would, every day, take, they'd have a session where they took a small stuffed animal, they lie down on the floor, they put it on their belly, they watch it go up and they watch it go down as they breathe in and out. They count one, two, three on the in-breath, one, two, three on the out-breath. What they're doing is leaving behind all of their problems, all of the stuff that worries them. And these are kids that, in Spanish Harlem, they live in a housing project, very chaotic lives, traumatic lives, actually. But for that time, they're free of all that. Not only are they doing that, they're strengthening cognitive control. They're learning to focus on that one thing that you want to pay attention to, let go of the other stuff, bring your mind back. And for them, that's very important because these are seven-year-olds. They're strengthening the circuitry for managing upsetting emotions, something that's going to 
help them through their lives. And the kids in class, the teacher tells me, very calm, very focused because of this exercise. But that is kind of a baseline for what spiritual practices do. I think all spiritual practices have a, a common biological and neurological effect, which is brings calm or equanimity, as it's called in spiritual traditions. It brings focus and self-discipline, the ability to put your mind where you want it to be, to do what you want to do. And over and above that, whichever particular belief system you have, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, whatever it is, uh, you'll have a version of the virtues that you're cultivating and that you can work with from there. But it, I love it that it's done in a totally secular way in a school setting because the benefit is um, at the biological level too. Daniel Goleman, former New York Times brain science reporter and author of Emotional Intelligence and most recently of Focus. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Mark Kilstein, Thomas Royal, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Maintaining Focus with Daniel Goleman, is Humankind Program number 203. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.